Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight we have Mr. Paul Callahan. Hello. Mr. Dan Morganti. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for being with us. Later in the show this evening, we will be speaking with an expert from RMIT University who will be sharing the hybrid threats that could manipulate the US election outcome, ranging from cyber attacks to disinformation and fake news. Sounds like an episode of Hackers. It's great. Um, plus, another RMIT expert joins us uh, because Melbourne International Games Week is on. We're going to discover how a local game designer is offering us the possibility of reimagining and revitalising Melbourne post-pandemic through playing with the city in Restart the World. What does all of that mean? Well, we'll let you know in the latter half of the show, so stick around for that. Before we get there, what's happening in, in news this week, Paul? Big, new, big news, obviously, for, for everyone uh, is the federal budget. Uh, some of you might have watched it live last night. Some of you might have decided not to watch it uh, for personal reasons um, and woke up to, to all of the news. Um, lots of tech stuff, interestingly enough. Lots of the kind of tech coverage is talking about what, what's in there. Um, a few interesting things, probably more than a few. Um, confirmation of the NBN upgrade, which we probably talked about on the show before um, realizing that actually fiber to the premises was maybe a good idea at some point <laughs> in the past. Uh, so looking at upgrading a whole bunch of the, the NBN, um, staying with networks 5G rollout support. So the government uh, committing to private sector trials. Um, so 22.1 million over three years for an innovation initiative um, and then a further 7.2 million on uh, an accelerated deployment of 5G infrastructure. Um, and obviously all of that is, is around the allocation to the spectrum. Um, interestingly, a Women in STEM cadetship program, um, which is 25 million, um, which is to support 500 women working in STEM industries to complete an advanced diploma through a combination of study and work integrated learning experiences. Um, there's a vehicle to grid trial in there looking at uh, electric vehicles. Um, CSR, uh, CSIRO uh, are getting some uh, money as part of the job maker plan. That that's is one. exciting after they had so much cut from them very recently. So that's that's 459.2 million. Right. Uh, it would be interesting to look back and see how much that covers some of those research cuts. Yeah, I think the problem with that is that they, they lost from the top and now they're gaining, you know, at the bottom. And so who are these people learning from? Yep, no, exactly. Um, staying with research and development, uh, the uh, controversial uh, research and development tax incentive uh, were scrapped, but the government has also, in the new budget, allocated $2 billion into research and development initiatives, um, $1.8 billion of which is going to come from those original RDTI plans. Um, space launch tax deferral, the government is giving up uh, on some uh, income. Uh, that they would take for doing space launches, uh, that but they, that will still come into effect in future. 
Uh, and lastly, uh, this one is probably the most worrying one, and I'm hopefully we'll get to pick up on it uh, in future shows. But like allocating 256 million um, for my Gov ID biometric verification. Yes, um, the Australia card is back. For this time, <laughs> it is the digital identity. Um, is that what yep. this is, Paul? Uh, it, it's unclear. So it's this funding would enable completion of biometric verification and the integration of MyGov onboard additional services to support businesses and individuals to access more Commonwealth government services online, trial use of digital identity with the states and develop legislation to enable use of digital identity to be expanded to other levels of government. And this is the worrying part and the private sector. Mm. So. That money's over two years. Presumably, we'll get more detail uh, and get to cover that in shows in future. Hopefully well, for more not. about that, people should go revisit the episode of Utopia. You know, Rob Dipter's <laughs> wonderful comedy series where he realised that they were accidentally proposing an Australia card. The solution was to to trial it in Canberra first, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's trial all of these things in Canberra in first Canberra. And, and see what see what happens. Absolutely. So lots of lots of tech news and the budget. Obviously it's it's more than just tech, but those are the kind of the highlights. Yeah. Hey Dan, have you been following any of the Apple's uh, information dropping about their October thirteen event? Yeah, so um each year, Apple has an event. Uh, normally, they introduce a new iPhone at their September event, um, but the iPhone was conspicuously missing from that event, the most recent one, um, which yeah. focused on the iPad and the Apple Watch. But uh, now they've announced on October 13, uh, without actually saying it's the iPhone, they've just dropped the tagline, high <laughs> speed. Um, and it's a safe bet that Apple will introduce the iPhone at the uh, lineup at the event um, because uh, the phone uh, likely uh, is reported as having the new high-performance A14 chipset and super-fast 5G wireless modem. So um, they haven't actually said it. Uh, Apple always the provocateurs trying to get the most out of their marketing. Um, uh, uh, yeah, going with the high-speed tagline for their likely iPhone announcement. Nice. And mm. Mac rumours already have generated three new stories out of that one little news <laughs> drop. So... Congratulations to them. Great job. That's actually the product of like iPhone <laughs> announcements. It's not, it's not new phone. It's the number of articles. That's yeah. right. That's their metric. No one uh, Paul, uh, did this news come from you? Ubisoft um, have a new release. Yeah. So some of you are probably aware that Ubisoft is working on, <laughs> I mean, endlessly working on um, new Assassin's Creed games. Uh, the upcoming one, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, um, is... <laughs> Is about Vikings, uh, and everyone everyone had been suspecting that for a while. Yeah, when is but this going to come? It yep. naturally must happen. Yep, and yeah, it's inevitable. Um, but interestingly, as part of the the sort of the advanced marketing for for the game, Ubisoft have made a podcast called Echoes of Valhalla, um, and all five episodes of it are currently up on Spotify. Um, and they describe it as a documentary series and as the first immersive audio historical documentary series in audio for Assassin's Creed. That seemed, <laughs> that's a lot of words to describe a podcast. Um, 
but it's it's a mix of experts and reconstructed scenes um, and comedians as well, um, centering on Vikings invading England um, and delves into various aspects of Viking life, uh, including uh, the roles of women, shipbuilding and military strategy. Um, and it's oh, this first... is not going to be controversial at all. <laughs> as, as far as uh, like pre pre launch marketing material goes, this is pretty in depth and like it's I'm, I'm a, yeah, yeah I'm actually excited to to listen to this it looks like it sounds like it's going to be actually quite interesting as opposed to just a terrible painted figurine that they yeah. ship with their game yeah they've gotten creative i mean they must have yeah. invested quite a lot in this that is that's a lot of work and it sounds sounds pretty uh historically accurate i mean to some extent there's always a little bit of history in uh assassin's creed games but uh, it varies from game to game. I don't think uh, a Minotaur ever existed. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we're there for the history anyway. No, I mean, I'm no. there for the fashion personally. Yeah, <laughs> nothing like I, an I assassin I don't think robe. someone actually had a fist fight with the Pope in the basement of the Vatican, really? which is my overwhelming <laughs> memory of Assassin's yeah. Creed. Wasn't that a choice that you made, though? You could just creep around or you could go on mission. You, you could know. fight the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, uh, yeah, the next Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed uh, Cardinal Fight Club. <laughs> Well, I thank you for that because that was the levity that we needed. Uh, we are on hump day and, uh, you know, we're in lockdown. So, so Ubisoft, um, credit to you for the Viking podcast. That is amazing. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. You're listening to Triple R's Bite Into It. You have Paul Callahan and Vanessa Taholka and Dan Morganti in studio. And uh, we're thrilled to have Professor Matt Warren with us at the moment. He is the director of the RMIT University Centre for Cybersecurity Research and Innovation. He joins us tonight to discuss cyber threats to the upcoming US election. Welcome, Professor. Good evening. How are you? Very well, thank you. Is it okay if we call you Matt? Oh, please, yes, please call me Matt. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, you know, we don't stand on formalities here, but, you know, you're the guest. Um, so it's such a, a fascinating moment in time, this particular US election that we're all looking uh, forward to at the moment. And we are hearing a lot about the sorts of new online threats to, I guess, democracy, to the way that, things like open and fair elections operate. And I wonder, you know, if you could tell us a bit about what that looks like when you're an expert in cybersecurity, you know, what are you looking for and what are you seeing out there that, that is, um, that's new and different? Okay, no, uh, certainly what we're talking about is something called uh, disinformation or information manipulation. And what the idea is that you manipulate people, voters, to change their minds about a certain decision. So you're trying to influence their decision-making, which in, a, in, a, in an election is voting. But what's different with this election was 2016 was the first election that we saw disinformation happening in um, in. Uh, the presidential campaign, and that was really Russia was behind that. But what's happening this time, which makes it interesting, is there's actually a number of state threat actors. You've actually got China, you've got Russia, you've got Iran trying to influence the outcome of the election, but for different candidates, which uh, makes it very interesting. So you've got Russia that's very pro-Trump, and what they're trying to do 
uh, is spread fake news, but what they're doing is becoming more sophisticated. So they, they have something called the Internet uh, Research Agency, which is more or less a, a pseudo-government department that just deals with disinformation. And what they're doing is hiring journalists to write stories so they can pass it on as if it was proper media through bogus media organisations. They're then getting politicians, Ukrainian politicians, to restate these fake stories to try to give it sort of credibility. You've got China, who are anti-Trump, so they're supporting Biden. And what they're doing is uh, the Chinese approach is that they're criticizing the U.S. government on certain policy aspects. So they're being critical and trying to manipulate around Hong Kong, around TikTok, around, you know, Huawei and 5G. And they're trying to, you know, re-emphasize the importance of China and China's position on those points. And you've then got Iran. And Iran are anti-Trump and pro-Biden. And simply what they're doing is what Russia was doing in 2016, is just spreading disinformation on social media and recirculating anti-US content uh, via social media. Hi, Matt. It's, it's Paul here. Um, that sounds uh, much more like more like a war between those kind of state actors than with the US as a battlefield than it does about just misinformation. Is, is, that, how, is that how it's playing out? Is that how it manifests? Or is it, is it something new that we've never seen before? Uh, well, it, it's uh, certainly with all the past disinformation campaign and information manipulation, there's only been one state player involved. So, but this is the first time we've actually seen three identifiers identifiable state players. And, and what you see is some of the messaging is cancelling out other messaging. So uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a strange state of affairs. Uh, and what you're also seeing, especially in things like Twitter, is the use of botnets to spread these uh, fake stories. We saw that with the Black, Life, uh, Black Lives Matter movement campaign, where uh, Russian-controlled botnets were being used to manipulate uh, information and spread information whilst engaging with the actual uh, conversations that were occurring as part of the Black Lives Matter movement discussion uh, online. So really, what we've seen is, is a lot of sophistication develop. And, and as she said, uh, the US has become a little bit of a, a battlefield now with these free state actors trying out different techniques to see if they're going to be successful or not. Um, well, of course, this is also a two-way street as well. So is how sophisticated is the US in this arena as well? I'm sure they've got their own methods. Well, it, it, it's difficult because um, a, a lot of it's based. Uh, a lot of it's based on uh, commercial sites. So you know, with the social media, it's really sort of uh, micro. Uh, so Facebook and Twitter becoming very active in terms of identifying and closing down accounts. Uh, Microsoft is is supplying a lot of threat intelligence about problems that they're seeing and sharing it. So what we haven't seen is what's happened in the 2016, uh, 2016 US election and what happened, nearly happened in the French 2017 presidential election, which is something called a hack and dump, which is where 
uh, a political party would be hacked, information stolen, and then just dumped on the internet for people to dissect and look through. The idea is that it, it then damages... Uh, it damages those political parties. So what you see is a greater awareness of political parties in the U.S. about the importance of cybersecurity. You're, set, you're seeing government departments involved in the elections, uh, you know, understanding much more about the integrity of the systems that they're sort of involved with. So uh, we're seeing some different trends develop than what we saw in 2016. Mm. Um, what about uh, Australia? Is Australia... Um, struggling with any of these issues? Uh, well, so certainly in, in, in the last uh, election, um, I sort of, you know, I undertook a, a study of, of fake news during the uh, uh, 2019 election, and I couldn't identify any uh, any inf uh, information manipulation campaign offshore. The only uh, campaigns I could identify were actually from political parties uh, within Australia, uh, that were running disinformation campaigns on on each other. But what I have identified is that Russia, you know, um, has run information manipulation campaigns uh, against Australia, but it was around uh, the Malaysian flight that was shot down over the Ukraine. So it, mm -hmm. so it, it was very much a particular topic focus rather than trying to, you know, uh, corrupt a sort of a democratic process. Matt, do political parties these days all hire security professionals to analyse and model event-based threats like this? And and if they do, are there are they actually practical steps they can take to minimise disruption of their campaigns? Or do they have uh, to be well, reactive? Uh, well, so certainly in, in the US there's much, much more greater awareness. In, in Australia, it's still very much about sort of uh, understanding the problem. So uh, a lot of the government intelligence agencies have been running awareness campaigns uh, for political parties in Australia, uh, telling them about, you know, basic things that they, they should be doing uh, with their systems, like, you know, having backups, thinking about, you know, picking proper appropriate passwords, having multi-factor authentication. So, so, so certainly in Australia... You, you're seeing uh, political parties become more aware, but certainly in Europe and the US, there's a greater uh, awareness and investment by political par parties around cybersecurity. So, Matt, when you when you talked about um, things like systemic vulnerabilities in the system, can can you explain to our audience like what are those sorts of vulnerabilities and, and how are they exploited? Well, uh, what, what the vulnerabilities are is, is the fact, um, so what you're trying to do is uh, disengage. So what the attackers, so if you look at Russia, what their motivation is to try to disengage a certain selection of voters so they won't take part in the election and motivate another part of the election uh, of the electorate that they will take part and vote for Trump. So, um, and we've seen this um, in, in Europe where what Russia is trying to do is manipulate uh, either disengagement of the mass population or just energise certain niche parts of the electorate, he would, he would become very vocal and then reinforce those messages that Russia wants to uh, spread. 
So it's very much about manipulation of the electorate and the way that they behave. So I've spent a lot of time in the Baltic and, and uh, Lithuania, uh, working with them to see how they sort of counter uh, election manipulation and the sorts of problems that they're challenging. And what they do in Lithuania is that they have sites where they post all the dis disinformation news stories that happen. What they also have online are Lithuanians acting on behalf of civil society that sort of report and out sort of fake stories that occur. And that model is being used in the Scandinavia, in, in, in other sort of Baltic countries. So it really depends upon uh, what the state, state actors are and what their motivation is. And who's, who's susceptible to these tactics? Is, I mean, we all have relatives who post on Facebook with abandon uh, things that you don't even need to read to know that they're false, uh, like um, Hillary Clinton being the Antichrist or something like that. But um, who, who is susceptible to this kind of stuff? Well, the, 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 the problem is, in theory, everyone is susceptible uh, because... Um, Everyone who uses social media, in theory, can interpret information posted on that as, as being fact. So one of the problems around fake news is what it does is it reinforces a person's state of mind or decision-making process. The problem is, if someone's made up their mind based on an item of fake news, and you then tell that person that that piece of news was fake you're not going to change their opinion. So this is actually the strength of fake news, is it can manipulate people's decision-making, and once that's been manip manipulated, it's very hard to change that point of view. Matt, we're seeing um, uh, not-for-profit organisations like First Draft trying to combat some of this, this problem with misinformation um, from the journalist fact-checking side. Do you think that... Um, that our social media platforms could be doing more to be pushing out fact checking. We saw a, a little, you know, little forays into that on Twitter and Facebook just this year, fact checking some posts by Trump. Um, is that part of the solution, or is that not that helpful? Um, it, it, it is part of the solution, and, and again, Facebook and Twitter realise that they have they have to do that. Uh, but, but again. Uh, what that relates to is, is news and groups that they can identify. The problem is when you have, you know, uh, freelance journalists being paid by bogus media organisations to post information that's wrong, that's hard to pick up. When you have graphical memes, which are very popular with, with Russia to get their message across, it's harder for Facebook or Twitter to pick up on those memes because you know, their text analytic techniques simply won't work. It would, need, it would need someone to view that meme to identify you know, whether it has a political connotation. So, so certainly uh, the social media companies are doing the right thing. But it's, it's becoming more complex. It's becoming harder to deal with. Um, so is, is the answer then, like, not actually a technical question? Is this about literacy and education and sort of, you know, kind of our, our social engineering? Like, if... 
Exactly. And certainly, um, and, and that's exactly what we've seen in the Baltic states, is how they're dealing with the problem from a, a civic society perspective, is what you have to do is educate the whole of society about what fake news is, what to look for, and, and what to do when they uh, see fake news. And in terms of Lithuanian example, they then have those empowered citizens who then monitor those activities also online and actively try to seek out those fake news stories and uh, either get them taken down by the uh, social media platform or publicly denounce them as being fake. Um, so... What what can we do, like, in, in Australia? Like, you know, like, presumably at some point we're going to become, like, a, a country or an area. Uh, as individuals. Well, uh, well, again, there's a couple of things we can, we can do. So certainly in Australia, uh, we have a, a very successful cyber safety campaign uh, organised for the safety commissioner. Uh, and as part of that, an extension of that could be, as well as dealing with cyber safety, is dealing with cyber safety and fake news. Uh, with the uh, different electoral bodies around Australia, is for them to run public awareness campaigns about fake news and question where they get that, 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 that information. But it, it really is an issue of public education and the best way to you know, educate any, pub, any public uh, you know, about these online issues. Matt, this is a fascinating area. Um, I think we could probably interrogate you for hours about this <laughs> because there's there's so much in it about what's gone in the past and, and what's going on now. But um, instead, I'd just like to extend an invitation. If you, if you get curious about another space here and want to chat with us again in the future, please let us know. Um, we've been speaking with Professor Matt Warren, who's from RMIT, where he's the director of the University um, of the Centre for Cybersecurity Research and Innovation. So do uh, Google his work because it's, it's really very interesting and relevant to this time. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Us. Thank you. Have a good night. Thanks, you too. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're Triple R and we're bite into it. We've got Paul Callahan, Dan Morganti, and I'm Vanessa Toholka. Thanks for being with us tonight. So it is Games Week in Melbourne at the moment, and Dr. Troy Innocent is an artist, academic, and educator investigating code in mixed realities. What on earth could that mean? Um, he's particularly interested in its capacity to decode and reimagine the world in playful ways. So tonight he joins us to discuss his latest project as part of Melbourne International Games Week. Welcome back, Troy. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. It so good to um, catch up again and see what you're doing with your amazing work. Now, some of you might know uh, Troy's work from seeing it around the city. There's there's um, beautiful little, uh, I guess, tangram type mosaics of, of little coloured pieces of something or other that are that are pasted around the city and that can help uh, provoke conversation and also actually secretly play a part in in games that Troy's done around the city but we want to hear where you're up to with your your current work um Paul do you want to kick us off um yeah so I mean just to just to sort of start Troy I'm interested in like that when you say you're investigating code and mixed realities can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners yeah sure of course 
Um, so really, um, I'm coming into into games from a, a couple of different disciplines. So from art, from design, um, and 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 also from 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 code itself. You know, understanding. I guess a bit like. Um, uh, what Matt was just talking about, how we're living in really spaces that are that are heavily coded, and and cities are no different. We think of them as probably our our kind of ideas of cities are, are, are fairly romantic, and um, you know come from last century in terms of it's a modern city, it's made of you know concrete and steel, and you walk around it, and 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 um, but you're also decoding it. So when when we're talking about decoding mixed realities, we're really just talking about understanding the city and understanding the fact that it is a constructed environment we kind of take it for granted but actually the, the a city is as, as constructed as a virtual uh, world as constructed as a game and and so how does that relate to this idea of like the the playable city which i know is a project you're, you're working on as well like what does it mean to play in that virtual world which is physical yeah, so this is a really interesting um, um, development, or kind of that that came out of you know pretty much um, the last two decades. We've seen an increasing digitization of cities, and so there's uh, in in addition to all the layers of environmental and historical and cultural codes that are embedded in cities, there's also a technological layer. Um, and this can be um, taken in a, in a, in in um, you know largely it kind of starts with systems of surveillance and control. So really, a playable city pushes back against that and says, well, if the city really is a giant interface, how can we play it? How can we um, you know uh, t take something like a city street and um, start to own it a bit more? So rather than be the the, the kind of um, uh, the, uh, the the object being scanned and 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 kind of um, subjected to the the city's surveillance, um, being part of that system and understanding the fact that you are in a system. So playable cities can be things as simple as um, you know analog play. Um, so bringing back those types of you know street play, street games, things that people used to do last century quite spontaneously. And uh, we've seen a lot of that now during lockdown, for example, people rediscovering that that kind of um, possibility of, of just playing with their local environment. Um, but it can also be technological play. So a bit like um, what Vanessa was talking about, the augmented reality games that, that I uh, create that interact with physical elements of the city. I loved those because not only did they um, exist on their own as little mini sculptures or artworks, they also existed the way that so many of us um, live in the city, which is holding our phones up. You know, whether you're a tourist or a local, you're looking to find something or you're looking at maps or you're checking social media while you're moving around and you're taking photos of things and it just seemed uh, so natural to actually involve what people were were. Uh, we're being confronted with and might be curious about with AR type uh, type experiences. It just whereas so many AR experiences seem very um, confined to certain spaces and they don't blend into where we're existing. So I kind of liked that. Um, so normally, when we think about people actively trying to create places for play in a city type environment, we think about architects mm. and landscapers and other sorts of um, designers of space. But what do um, people who come with more of a games and a playful mentality kind of bring to that that's quite different in your approach? Yeah, well, this is where this idea of um, 
you know, kind of coming back to mixed realities, the the idea of seeing the the, the world in a different way, seeing it through a playful lens. So that um, action that you were just talking about of, 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 of thinking about how people already interact with their environment through mobile phones, we can um, appropriate that action and bring it into a, a kind of playful form of engagement. So, so a game, so whereas, you know, like an architect might look at a city and say, well, you know, we're going to build this with a particular kind of master plan in mind, a, a game developer will come into the city and say, well, what can we make with this city as a material? What kind of elements of this can we change and, 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 and remix? And, you know, one of the examples, it's a really early example of pervasive game design is, um, um, but kind of probably illustrates this in a really playful way is Pac Manhattan, where, um, you know, the, the, the kind of grid, the Manhattan, the, the Manhattan grid becomes a giant Pac Man maze. And so that's a really playful example, but it can also um, come into uh, more subtle forms of, of, of cultural play. Like, um, uh, so um, in, in the game that you were talking about before, um, uh, uh, um, the the mobile phone screen is using is and augmented reality is used really sparingly. So it kind of frames the city in terms of you know a question, a provocation about well, how could we reimagine this city? And then for a lot of the the gameplay, you actually put your phone away and you you're just in a state of of imagination. So and this is the way that we engage with games. You know when we we, we come into a, a a digital game we start to think about, oh, how does this world work? How do we learn about this world and, and all of the connections within it, which is really the way a child sees the world, the real world. They play to understand it. And so adults can kind of go into that particular way of seeing the world and, and, and start to kind of decode and reimagine um, their environment. It's, I mean, it sounds to me as though there's there's a bit more of a, a political bent to those ideas. Um, you know, like it is about sort of almost a kind of an activism or an exploration or a, a sort of a, a cautious undermining of like the systems that are already in play there. Does that form part of the the work that you're exploring or, or even the broader sort of Playable Cities thinking? I, I, I definitely. I mean, the, the Playable City project um, in its um, iteration that originated the Watershed Pervasive Media Studio in Bristol was really directly against the smart city and the idea of you know surveillance and control and and you know technological determinism and and really smart cities. I mean, if we want to kind of talk about this particular moment, you know, smart cities have, have, have responded and said, "Oh, we have to do community engagement because you know they realise that people are onto them," um, and. And, um, you know, the same thing with, with this particular moment that we find ourselves in now, you know, the, the pandemic has been hugely disruptive in really, really negative ways, impact on mental health, on, um, uh, uh, you know, economic impact, um, you know, just, you know, kind of, uh, kind of, it, it, you can't, there's no words for the, the, the kind of, uh, disastrous impact that it's had on 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 human life, um, but it also highlights if you kind of really look at the the the, the agenda here is that um, there's there's more to the world than than humans for one thing, but but also that 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 cities perhaps are unhealthy in the first place. The ways that we live in cities are unhealthy, and kind of slowing down and connecting with community and connecting with your local neighbourhood and kind of having ownership of of the world around you, not just your home. Um, is really important. So I've felt really different um, uh, uh, just in the last year. So I used to see the boundary of you know myself and my environment as being the front door, but now it feels much more permeable, much more connected with you know the five kilometer radius that I can access. And oh, absolutely, really interesting. Um, and and this is where you know kind of 
the, the, you know, we then bring in into the mix tactical urbanism where you can say, well, let's close off parking spaces and make bike lanes. Let's close off um, streets and make playgrounds. Let's, you know, do all of these um, kind of actions. And, you know, the big kind of takeaway from for cities and, and architects and um, urban planners from the pandemic is that, oh, you know, um, uh, local government and, and um, you know, kind of um, people who own public space, no, not that it, public spaces for everyone, can can act, they actually can can move more quickly. And a really simple um, example that I'll kind of want to, I guess, use is, is, is the um, uh, uh, crossings in the city. Um, for, for years, apparently, they've been kind of pushing to put them on automatic um, so that, you know, uh, and and it was only through the pandemic that said, oh, actually, you don't have to push the button. You can just regulate traffic and allow equal time for pedestrians and cars. Um, uh, and that's been possible for all this time, but now it's been turned on because there's a need for it. And so cities can change much more quickly than than we um, have been told. Um, so, like, from, from someone who's, like, right in the thick of this, what what's, like, the most interesting or surprising, uh, uh, like, playable way that we can interact with our city that you've seen uh, during the pandemic? Yeah, this is a, this is a really good question. I mean, um, first of all, it's uh, the, the, the idea of permission. Uh, so the fact that people have, you know, then this is, is, is expressed through a number of different ways, some of them really, really simple, such as you know, drawing rainbows on the on the on the pavement with chalk. You know, usually, you know, just drawing on your footpath outside your house would be, you know, I can't do that. You know, even though it's completely legal. Um, so there's that opening up of freedom. You know, there's that um, that that kind of um, possibility. Um, and then, you know, just the kind of increased uh, participation in green spaces, um, in parks, and 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 um, you know, the the numbers have gone up in in a kind of huge way. Uh, in those types of spaces, and you're seeing spontaneous play. It's almost like, um, uh, you know, the kinds of scenes that you observed during the 1980s when people felt safe to go out into the world. You know, it's um, there's some strange kind of retro um, uh, kind of neighbourly uh, community. Um, but there's also people who are more actively working in these types of um, I, in these, these these frames, and and I haven't played this, but I'm really curious about a, a project called Playscape uh, at um, the VNA in Dundee, where they've actually started to use the social distancing circles that we've become familiar with as a game board. So so literally kind of enacting this idea of the city as a game board and saying that this is okay, this is really a need. You know, we need to put these things in place, but why can't we also play with them? So if you're in the red square and I'm in the blue circle and there's a couple of rules that you know kind of set up interaction with that suddenly you have socially distanced interaction with strangers which you know perhaps we didn't think was possible before so I can oh, see that's a, so cool. yeah I can yeah. see a giant game of connect four down at uh, Prince's Park with uh, <laughs> everyone jumping in the in the circles yeah, Dan, you're right. I think the council workers missed a trick there because they've been drawing circles in our, in our parks and we're like this close yeah. <laughs> So, Troy, the reason we're speaking with you tonight is um, because you have an event coming up this Friday. It's going from 1 to 4 p.m. Um, remember, it's daylight savings time if anyone's listening to state. And it's free, but it does require registration. And it is a bit of an exploration of some of these ideas. So can you frame up this event for us, uh, this Restart the World, Troy? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, our ambitiously titled event, Restart the World, is really opening up the conversation around some of these ideas. So um, a lot of the work that I'm doing at um, RMIT uh, University is, is um, building an urban play network, which is really bringing in a, a range of diverse and uh, in interdisciplinary voices into the mix about what public spaces can be. Um, so thinking about, you know, we have landscape architects, we have placemakers, we have um, uh, uh, um, kind of uh, uh, um, uh, people who are game designers. So actually we have, we have the designer of, of Pac Manhattan is joining us from New York uh, in one of the panel sessions. Um, and it's being, uh, the conversation is starting with um, Esther Anna Toledos, who's an advocate for arts and culture. And she's really been um, pushing uh, the conversation around how arts and culture can help us to really reconnect with the world. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit kind of, you know, um, apprehensive about going back out into the world. I'm really excited, but it's like, well, you know, it's changed. And, and there's a lot of things that we want to keep, um, you know, we want to keep that kind of slowdown, that kind of reconnection. Um, we also have um, yours truly, Paul Callahan, um, talking about um, you know, the, the role of, 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 of a number of different things, both from, from um, um, Paul's hat as a game designer, but also as a creative producer and, and, and as coordinator of arts and creative industry at City of Port Phillip. So kind of bringing that, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of local government perspective, you know, how can you do these things locally? But, you know, how can you harness that, you know, um, connection to community and 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 and, and kind of uh, a hyper local um, activation and um, you know, sustain it post pandemic because it's really something worthwhile holding on to and and um, to talk through some of the practicalities of that we have um, Barb Champion from Play Australia who has been um, in in the trenches uh, uh, actually closing down streets for play um, even prior to the pandemic she's uh, has a, been leading a project called a thousand play streets so we're kind of wanting to have this conversation around, um, you know, all of those ideas about what our our world could be post-pandemic, what our cities could be pan post-pandemic, even if we need, you know, cities still at all. You know, and the big kind of question here is um, the, uh, how we address this kind of decentering that's happened. So really the idea of centralised cities um, goes right back to, um, you know, the birth of urbanisation, which is centuries ago, you know, maybe now is the time for us to rethink how cities are organised altogether and, and perhaps um, game designers have a, uh, have a role to play in that. That is very cool. Um, in the interest of, of not um, kind of going over the content that you're going to discuss then, <laughs> we really appreciate how you've managed to uh, discuss with us so much about your work and give us a bit of a teaser uh, without without blowing that event. So we're really looking forward to it. Sounds fantastic. Um, Dr. Troy Innocent, thanks so much for speaking with us tonight. Pleasure. We um, will direct people out on the Twitter to uh, that amazing Restart the World Games Week event. We'll shoot that out. Uh, if you're interested in Troy's event, you can go to gamesweek.melbourne slash events slash all slash restart the world um, and register now. It's a free event uh, happening this Friday um, and having tomorrow night more friends of the show free play parallels is happening um, from 7 p.m. It's also free short talks heartfelt games is how to describe it uh, you can go to freeplay.net.au for more details on that. Fantastic one other event to uh, for 
podcast, I guess, Making in Minecraft, a platform artist talk, which is happening on Saturday, the 17th of October at 2 p.m. So Platform have been running these amazing interactive events where they've paired electronic musicians with artists who've been uh, making things in Minecraft. So Platform Artistic Director is going to speak to some of those artists about things in Minecraft, which will be really cool. Hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening, Professor Matt Warren and Dr. Troy Innocent, both from RMIT. Thanks to Dan and Paul for being my co-hosts and to our talks producer, Elizabeth. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts. 